Hi, my name's Amanda Cook. I'm a covenant member here at The Well. I serve on the welcome team and I'm in the Sendero Hills community group. Today we have two verses. I'm gonna start with Luke 22, 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And then we will also be in John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where, I'm, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Cool. Thank you, Amanda. What's up, y'all? Um, my name is Chris Henry. I'm one of the elders here at The Well. Um, super excited to, to be with you guys today, as I am most Sundays. Um, <laughs> but for this, this day, uh, preaching the word of God, amen. Um, I have a picture of my family up here, um, my wife and my new son, Judah. Yes, sir. Yes, 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 yes. Hey, he's cute, huh? Yes. Man, I'm experiencing all the things that the parents talked about uh, and it's kind of making me grow in appreciation for all the stuff that my parents went through with me, probably with less resources, you know, like they were using cloth diapers back then and we got the pampers now. <laughs> but the sleepless nights are there and it just, it makes me wonder, like, am, as I mature more, am I going to be able to see all the things that my parents did to provide for me like my son will see as he's growing up, right? I think that's kind of like how the gospel is where as we mature as believers, we'll be able to see all the ways that Jesus has changed and transformed our lives, amen? Because he didn't just save us from hell, all right? Even though that would be enough, amen? But there's more to it than that. Uh, so today we're gonna be in our Partners in the Gospel series, and we're gonna be looking at uh, what it means to be a, a gospel-saturated church. Uh, and so this is our distinctive here. It says that we are a gospel-saturated everything type of people uh, we believe that the gospel transforms every aspect of our lives. You cannot outgrow the gospel, and it is the power of God in everything that you do. Uh, the scriptures consistently show us that Christ is our example and fulfillment of every portion of scripture, and then he calls us to live this out as well. So my hopes and prayers for the day is that by the end of this, that we would be a, a more gospel-saturated people. Uh, and what do I mean by that, right? I think that I want us to grow in our ability to see God's original design for the world, to be able to see the effects of sin and brokenness, 
uh, to be able to behold the finished work of Jesus and how he reconciled all things to himself on the cross. And then also to see how we're now sent on mission as ministers of reconciliation to the world around us. So that's what we're doing today, all right? Cool. We're going to explore Jesus' purpose for commanding the believers uh, to love one another. I'm going to take a swig of water. That was already a mouthful. (laughs) Cool. So uh, a few months ago, my wife and I, we finished watching this series on Netflix called The Last Kingdom. I don't know if anyone has here seen it. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's about Vikings and all that kind of stuff. But in the, in the first season, there's a king. His name is King Ethelwald, and he's uh, the king of the Saxons, but he's about to die. He got wounded in battle. And so his brother, whose name is Alfred, and his son, uh, whose also name is Ethelwald, are beginning to have this argument about who's going to ascend to the throne. So you, I'm sure you guys can feel the tension in that. If you've ever seen people fight over the last will and testament of somebody. And, and so they're, they're fighting about this. Eventually, King Ethelwald dies. Um, and his brother actually ascends to the throne. It wasn't the normal secession pattern. But as history would have it, uh, his son would partner with the enemy Vikings to try to assassinate his uncle. Which is crazy, right? He was part of a kingdom, and he was willing to take it down just so he can be the king. That, 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 that power hunger is different, right? Man, it's crazy. And so, <laughs> and so he almost put the kingdom at risk of crumbling. And I think that the, the sin issue there that we see is that that power hunger can drive us or drive him to do crazy things just to get to the throne. And I think similarly what we'll see today as we jump into this text is that this need for this hunger for power, this hunger for glory, this, this hunger for a greatness can drive humans to do crazy things to try to ascend above each other. Amen? Cool. So we're going to pick up the story because the disciples were in a very similar position. Um, and I'm reading from Luke 22, 24. It might be on the screen behind me. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. My goodness. So let me give you, let me give you <laughs> some context for when they were having this conversation, right, this argument. It was the Last Supper, and the last, meaning the last time Jesus was going to be eating with these men. And Jesus had been telling them and preparing them for years now that he was going to be going away, and it was going to be a place that they could not come. And so in the back of their minds, right, they understand that Jesus is going to be going away soon. Um, And so, lo and behold, in typical human fashion, that puts in their mind not to mourn the loss of their friend in Jesus, but to think, who's going to be able to take his spot? I want it to be me. And so then they get into arguments like, no, you trash, I want it to be me. (laughs) I participate in some kind of conversations like that myself. (laughs) But it's, 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 it's very understandable why they would want to be in Jesus' spot, right? Jesus was a, a great rabbi in that time. He had a lot of followers uh, in that society. They were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so they could only get so high up the totem pole. And so the rabbi, the position of the rabbi was like the upper echelon of the community. They were well-respected, typically well taken care of financially, and were seen as all-around great people. And so the disciples seeing all the thousands of people that have been following Jesus for years 
as he's traveled around ancient Palestine. I'm talking about thousands. On multiple occasions, he's fed four or five, 5,000 people, and that was just counting the men, not the women and children. And they didn't even have social media back then. So, I mean, Jesus was really famous. And these disciples see an opportunity to have a greatness of their own like such that Jesus had when he was on this earth. And so they're at, this, at the Last Supper, and they're, have, they're breaking out into this argument, and Jesus, before this, is trying to shed light on his greatness. And, and let me give you some more context, too, right? The Last Supper. Does anyone know what Passover is? Yeah? Well, for those of you who might not know, Passover is this holiday um, where the people of Israel are actually instructed to be reflecting on the greatness of God when he delivered them out of slavery from Egypt. And so the disciples are in a moment when they're supposed to be reflecting on the greatness of God. And they're also in a moment where Jesus is revealing greatness about himself in the sense that he told them, hey, this Passover meal is really about me. Here's my body that will be broken for you in the bread. Here's my blood that will be shed for you, just like the Passover lamb. But the disciples are so sick with their sin that all they can do, they can't see Christ's glory. They can't see the glory of God in that moment. They're only fighting for their own greatness. Man. And I, I think this is, is a human condition that goes beyond even just the disciples in that moment. And what do I mean by that, right? I think, let me just define this, this, this term glory hunger. Because it's, it's not just a desire to see and respond to greatness, but it's, it's actually a desire to possess greatness and to have others respond to it as well. Deep down, we have a desire not only to ascribe worth to an object, but also to have others ascribe worth to us. And so to give glory to something means that you are going to deem it impressive and you're going to attribute worth to it as something that possesses significance and importance. And so just to, to, to imagine the awkwardness of this situation, right? Imagine one of your own friends... And, and maybe a group of you guys are gathered together, and he tells you, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to die tomorrow. Right? And then you guys are like, hey, can I have your house? <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's awkward. I, there, the only way that I could uh, show this tension, I, I felt it as I was reading. I was looking up like, man, I wish I could text somebody a mean. And so I, I started thinking like... <laughs> I was, like, I was like, man, this is how I feel because this is the awkwardness of this situation. I'm like, how are the disciples able to do this in the presence of Jesus, right? They're sick. They're sick. I'm sick too, amen. <laughs> uh, but they're really, they're really glory hungry. And so, and so we have to ask, like, man, were, were they wrong? Were they wrong for that? Is, is being glory hungry, is that in and of itself wrong? Is it wrong to desire to be great? Is it wrong to desire to be a, a leader or a ruler? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I don't think it's wrong. And why don't I think it's wrong? I, think it's, I don't think it's wrong because I think it's how God created us. If you go back to Genesis and you look in the story of creation, God even said in Genesis 1.28, I believe, that he told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. He said that he was making man in his image and in his likeness. 
And with that comes an idea that man is great like God, a perfect reflection of his glory in the original state. Amen? And so the desire to be great is not bad. But what is bad and what can become problemsome is when you're seeking greatness or you're seeking glory from someone who can't feel it. Amen? So where do things go wrong? Back in Genesis still. Eventually, in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve <clears throat> ate of the fruit and sin, and they broke everything. Uh, the author, J.R. Baxter, says this. It says, in spite of her glorious position and the crown that God had placed upon her, Eve, she, began to long for promotion, that she could be more than a creature made in the image of God, that she could become just like God. If she took of the forbidden fruit, she could have eyes open and God-like discernment, knowing the difference between good and evil. And so Eve began to believe that she could have a glory, a glory of her own that surpassed the one that was put upon her. And so in this moment, everything changed. In this moment, how humans were designed to receive glory and praise and significance, which was directly from God himself, was fractured. And so humans were left in that state to start seeking glory from each other. And the glory that I can give you and the glory that I can give you is nothing compared to the glory that God can give you. Amen? And so what's left is people who are hungry and hungry and hungry, and they seek more praise and more praise and more praise. And I see it in myself. It's, it's something that can never be filled. Are y'all tracking with me? And so this is what's coming out in the disciples. This is a, the sin nature that has been passed down from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Jackie Hill Perry says this, that every baby is a mirror tracing back to Adam. Children fresh out of the womb are only new in the sense of not having been in the world before, but none of them are new in the sense of having a nature different than the flesh that brought them forth. So we are sinners because our parents are too. And David says this in the Psalms, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so to be a gospel-saturated people, right, like I said earlier, we have to be able to identify sin and brokenness in the world around us. So where do we see this in our culture, right? I think in our culture, I, I, would, I would dare to guess that everyone in here might have a social media account. Is that safe to say? Yeah. A Facebook an Instagram, a Twitter. We see it in social media. I mean, I, I went on there this morning. I, I did not prepare this point before today because I was like, there's going to be some material there. I went on this morning, and I saw a lady who had been growing her fingernails for 25 years. <laughs> 25 years. And I, I was like, there's no way she could be doing that for any other reason but for clout. <laughs> like, it's, 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 it's so unreasonable. Like, she cannot even use the restroom. Like... Her nails were down to the ground. And so we see it in social media. We see it in everyone's desire to be liked and, and, and commented on and affirmed. We see it in careerism, right? That if I only have this job, that my peers and my friends and my family will esteem me a little bit more highly because of this position that I'm taking. 
You see it in our education system, right? Everyone wants to go to the best school. What's the best school in Texas? Texas oh, okay. All right. See? See? Everyone wants to be associated with the best school. I'm not going to say which one it is. <laughs> uh, if you want to even choose the best major, right, so that your parents or your friends will be proud of what you've studied and accomplished. Man, I'm even seeing it in parenting, right? When people say your child is cute, oh, man, you can't help but be, feel a little sense of pride. <laughs> All right, yeah, well, we made that. <laughs> uh, or, or how about the, the flip side of that? What if people say your child misbehaves, huh? You don't want that. That's not the glory that you're seeking because that reflects bad on the parents. You even see it in kids. Man, kids be like, little kids be like, hey, watch me. Watch me. And they just like spin in a circle or something like that. <laughs> uh, man, I'm getting off my notes. So stop. Um, you see it in marriage and, and, and relationships. You know, ladies to men, they be like, yo, babe, does this make me look fat? Or does this make me look pretty? Do you think I'm pretty? Affirm me. Esteem me highly, give me glory. Men, you see it another way, like they want to have the baddest broad. Maybe broad's not a good word. The, uh, the baddest girl. <laughs> uh, they, want, they want other people to think like, ooh, man, he must be cool because his girlfriend or wife, fiance, whatever, is beautiful, right? Shoot, I even see it in myself. I'll get personal here. I won't leave myself untouched. I see it when we do worship because I serve on the worship team and when people say, oh, man, I love that worship set, I feel good. Or even if they say, they might come up to somebody over here and be like, hey man, you really blessed me leading us in worship. And I'll be over there be like, oh, y'all ain't see me. <laughs> the worship wouldn't sound good if it wasn't no keys. I want my glory too, amen. <laughs> even, in, even in crafting this sermon, I was thinking like, I didn't want to quote certain people because I was like, I want these ideas to be seen as my own. I, don't, I didn't want to give, I didn't want to share the spotlight with somebody else. And so deep down, I see in our culture, in our own society, that we have this desire not only to ascribe worth to other people and objects, but we also want people to ascribe worth and value to us. And this is because of the sin nature that we have inherited from Adam and Eve. We're no longer able to correctly receive the glory that was due to us in the garden from God himself. And so we are now slaves to the praises of other people. St. Augustine says, says this, that you, speaking about God, has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. And so we've, we've inherited restless, hungry hearts, and we've also inherited their punishment too, right? Which is death and separation from God. Somebody say, but God. Because in all of this, Jesus is still in the room. And Jesus, he desires to create a culture in his kingdom where people are no longer enslaved to their need for glory. They're no longer enslaved with their need to be great, no longer pacifying their self-esteem with the praises of other people that will only leave them more hungry and shallow. And so let's see, let's see how Jesus responds, right? I think the first way that Jesus responds to the disciples in this moment is that he sees their brokenness. I think it would be very easy if someone didn't see their brokenness that they would respond in anger. When you see a kid doing something silly, and then they hurt themselves. You don't go and berate them. 
do you, right? No, you, you want to care for them and help them up. And I think that Jesus sees the disciples in his way. He even says little children as he was talking about them earlier, right? Jesus sees the plight of the human condition, and then he takes a step to move them and show them how, it's, how things are supposed to be. He says in, in Luke twenty two twenty five, 25, he says that the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Because what Jesus is trying to show them is like, hey, God is not like that. God is not like, God does not need to trample on somebody else to be glorious because he's glorious in and of himself. And the danger is this, that, that Jesus knows that he's about to leave and he's about to leave these men in charge of his church. And the danger of having glory hungry men in charge of your church is that they will, they will start to build their own kingdom instead of building the kingdom of God using their congregations and using their followers to pacify their need for glory because they are not connected to the one who's glorious himself. Amen? And so Jesus sees the problem, and he calls it what it is. He doesn't want it to ruin his mission as he's about to go to the cross because the truth is that God desires that all men... Somebody say all men. God desires that all men will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so what does Jesus do next? He does something very strange, which I think a lot of things that Jesus does are strange. Mary read a scripture today that says that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So that's probably what it is. I just don't understand what he's doing. <laughs> but Jesus gets up from his chair from the Last Supper. He takes off his outer garment. He gets down puts on the towel, grabs a basin of water, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. What? Right? Isn't that strange? This man who days before this moment, the crowds around them were regarding him as the king of the Jews, the long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah. They, crowds just days before this, were taking off their coats and putting them at his feet so that he didn't touch the ground. This same man who had thousands of people were following him, and the disciples saw that, was getting down into, into the position of a slave to wash their feet. It's, it's gross. It's an injustice. That would be, it would be like the Queen of England coming and working at Taco Bell here to serve us a beef fajita. Right? It doesn't make sense. She, she shouldn't be there. Jesus should not be here serving the disciples like this, so much so that Peter responds and is like, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. That's not okay. It's an aggressive example that Jesus is trying to show them, like, yo, like, this is how it needs to be. And is, isn't that the gospel, right? Isn't it, isn't it true that Jesus left heaven, came to earth in the likeness of man, put on flesh, lived among us, in this dirty, filthy world? Philippians 2 says that he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. And so Jesus is doing the opposite of what Eve did in the garden, right? 
instead of grasping and reaching for the glory that she shared with God, Jesus is saying, hey, that's, that's not a thing to be grasped. I'm going to humble myself and come and take on the form of a servant. Jesus is going to become a, almost like a slave to serve the people who are enslaved to their own need for glory. Amen? And this is, this is part of the goodness of the gospel that I was talking about earlier. It's not just being saved from hell, but Jesus is attempting to save people from ruining themselves in their hunt for glory. He sees the disciples' enslavement, and he desires to make them one with God and reconcile all of that in his death. Even in John 17, Jesus is in the garden praying, and he says that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And so Jesus is, is seeing the potential destruction to the kingdom that is going on in the disciples. And he's like, no, it can't be like that. I need to restore them into relationship with me and with God so that they can be in better relationship with each other, that they won't be trampling over each other, trying to become the greatest. This is the gospel. And so what does this, what does this mean for us, right? Well, what did it mean for the disciples? For the disciples, it meant that now that they've seen this example from Jesus, right, they, Jesus commands them in, in, in John 13, 34, he's like, a new commandment I give to you now, Right? You've seen my example. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this will all people know that you are my disciples. It won't be because of the the following that you have or the great position that you have. Because what Jesus is trying to show them is like, hey, I'm going to satiate your desire for glory so that you are now enabled to go out and be my disciples and love people because you're no longer hungry. And then this is how people are going to identify you with me. Amen? Jesus wants to make the messy things around him clean again. And so all at once, he's establishing a new culture for his disciples and showing them the nature of who God is so that they can show the rest of the world around them who God is. And so being, so being gospel-saturated, right, is, is us now learning to identify the brokenness around us just like Jesus identified it. Us being able to see the areas of our life that are broken, the things that might not even seem broken, right? Things like your relationship with money. Slave to the dollar. But the gospel turns our relationship with money on its head in the sense that we know that God will provide for all of our needs. And so now money is not something that we have to hoard and hold on to, amen, but it's a tool for the building up of his kingdom. Do we see how that works? Or relationships. I don't need my wife to be my source of love because Jesus says that he has loved us and he's even demonstrated his love for us in the laying down of his life. And so even when I don't feel love from my spouse, I can rest in the fact that I'm loved by God himself. Amen? We have to be gospel-saturated. We can't just look at the situations around us with, 
normal eyes. Even Paul says here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Amen? And so what's the, what's, what's the next thing that it means for us? Well, we have to obey his command. We have to love like Jesus. Now, here's, here's, a, here's a tricky thing, right? I think that sometimes people might think, okay, love like Jesus, go out and do these, these acts of love easy enough or, or have kind feelings towards people. But that, that's, that's not what this is saying. What, this, what, what Jesus is saying here is uh, the word that he used for love is agapao. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I'm not a, not a scholar. Um, but essentially what this means, it's different from agape or phileo or all the other types of love used in the scriptures. This is an action love. This is you doing actions that flow out of your personhood. And so the, the neat thing about this is that the disciples in their broken state can only do sinful acts because that's part of their nature. But what Jesus is saying is, is love like me. That means loving out of a nature that is connected to the source of love himself, which is God. And so for the moralist, right, people are in philanthropy and all this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, I, I, I do love. I do acts of love. No, they're not loving like Jesus. Because Jesus is saying love like you're connected to God himself and let your acts flow from that. But the harder matter is you got to do something, amen? We can't just be hearers of the word and not... And not doers also. Love, love, this love that Jesus is talking about, it, it, it does stuff. Bob Goff says that that's because love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. And so Jesus is calling his disciples to get in the game. And, and the other cool thing about Jesus' command is that he's giving the disciples a means by which to sanctify themselves. I know that's a, a, weird, a weird sentence, a, a weird word, but what I mean by it is this. The disciples being in the practice of laying down their crowns, their quote-unquote crowns, and serving those around them, a natural byproduct of that, right, is their worship of God and they're staving off of falling into glory hunger. Does that make sense? Are y'all tracking with me? It, it, it's, a, it's a strange concept, but what we see is, is, it's almost like when we gather here together in the church building, our hearts are shaped to worship and glorify Jesus instead of ourselves. When we move throughout our normal days in the week, there's so many things that are trying to shape us to want to be great and to want to satiate that hunger. But what Jesus is saying that, hey, if, if you follow my commands, the natural byproduct of it is that you will be shaped to love me and to lay down your glory for the sake of others. I think I've been trying to think about some practical ways that we can do this. And um, I would love to highlight the fan ministry here at the well, right? Because they they're, they're operating this, right? Our fan ministry here is it stands for the foster and adoption ministry, and they are practicing being a gospel-saturated people that are 
doing the work of, of ministry. They are seeing brokenness in the world in the sense that kids do not have a home or a place to live. And they are laying down their time, talents, and treasures to make a home and a space for people. They're doing gospel ministry. I even think of uh, myself and my wife over the past few weeks. We just had a, a son, as you know, and people have been bringing us meals. Amen. The meal train ministry. <laughs> and, and it's been a blessing because people are taking time out of their days to love us in a very tangible way. And, it's all, and I even see the effects of it uh, that Jesus said, like, hey, all men will know you are my disciples by this because I've been talking about that with friends and, and people that I know. And tip, the typical pattern when people have a kid, especially away from their families, is that, uh, hey, man, it's so hard. I wish I had my family close to help, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it hasn't been the case with us because we have people here who are loving us like Jesus that are going and getting us groceries or coming over and just sitting with us because we're extroverts and we need that human connection. People who are bringing us lunch and dinner, good meals too, amen. <laughs> and so it's actually a witness to the people around us that, hey, there's something different about this community that is opposed to what the world would normally be like. And so as I wrap up, I, I want to make an invitation. And if you haven't, placed your trust in Christ, I invite you to respond. Because if you feel as though you're stuck in the search for your own greatness and glory, or, I mean, shoot, if, if your 12-year-old self inside of you feels stuck in the need for affirmation and acceptance from your peers, Jesus is speaking to you and saying, come to me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you feel like you're a slave to the praises of others, even now, Jesus offers you to come. And even for the believer, I invite you to respond to Jesus as well. Amen? I invite you to, to get into the game, to follow in obedience his commands. The Lord will continue to shape your heart so that you're not in a place of seeking your own glory, but you're seeking the glory of God himself. I want us just to remember this, right? This is just one example of, of how sin has broken us and broken things around us. There, there, there are so many more examples and, and the neat thing about following Jesus is that over time, like I mentioned earlier, when my son is going to grow up and realize all the things that we've done to love him, following Jesus is just like that, where you'll begin to see all the wonderful things that Christ has done to love you and to reconcile broken places in your life. And so if you, if you walk away with anything, I want you to walk away with that, that Jesus has done some things that you might not even realize yet. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your work on the cross. I thank you for, I thank you for seeing us. I thank you for seeing our pain and responding in love. I thank you for even seeing our sin against you and responding in love. I thank you for wiping the tears and 
giving balm to the wounds that are caused by the broken world that we live in that would say that we're not worthy or we're not, or that we're worthless. I thank you for reconciling those things in your cross, and I pray that as a people you will help us to see and know and believe that that's true. In Jesus' name, amen.